This podcast represents the views of the hosts and not the University of Texas at Austin. This is Policy Out of Purpose, a podcast produced by the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. We take you behind the scenes of policy with people who are shaping and have helped shape it. For more, visit lbj.utexas.edu slash podcast. I'm Bill Shute, Executive Director of the LBJ Washington Center, and I'll be your host for this series as we hear from four Texas-based experts and historians who will frame today's political environment with the help of lessons learned in the past. Our second episode features a conversation with Dr. Sarah Coleman, Assistant Professor and Historian at Texas State University, who's recently authored The Walls Within the Politics of Immigration in Modern America. It's an insightful look at how immigration policy doesn't stop at the border. Thank you for joining me here, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me, and I really appreciate this warm welcome from the LBJ School. Well, we're thrilled to have you, and I really enjoyed your conversation at the Washington Center. And it, it was clear that this wasn't your first visit to D.C. I mean, in fact, you've worked on the front lines of federal government. So let's start by telling us about your previous work and what drew you to immigration policy. Right. So um, like many people, I was interested, and in, I grew up in a political household, and I was, have always been interested in politics. And um, after I got my master's degree, I'm back to the United States. I'd been in England and I moved to D.C. And I interned for my congresswoman, a woman named Nydia Velasquez. And I became incredibly interested in working on the Hill um, and in politics. And so I ended up working at the time for then Senator Joe Biden from Delaware, uh, first in his personal office and then on his Senate subcommittee staff. Um, And I ended up working for him for about five and a half, six years. And I loved how I loved seeing how politics influenced policy and kind of how the day to day politics played out um, in DC. And it's an invaluable experience that uh, I certainly um, think is very important to this day in framing how I think about political issues. I think that's a great opening for this conversation that you have at the center. So, Dr. Coleman and I will return at the conclusion of our recorded conversation, but let's get started. Thank you for joining us. Tonight, it's my pleasure to have our uh, special guest, Dr. Sarah Coleman, who is assistant professor and historian from Texas State University and current author of The Walls Within, The Politics of Immigration in Modern America. I'd also like to welcome the Assistant Director for Research at LBJ's Center for the Study of Race and Democracy, Dr. Sergio Garcia Rios, who will be moderating our panel tonight. So please join me in welcoming them to the stage. Everyone, it's gonna be a fantastic um, conversation. I'm very excited to be here and to be here to discuss this fantastic book. Thank you so much. Um, I, feel, I feel somewhat um, intrigued to ask uh, about a book that's you know, uh, on, on a topic that I obviously care so much about and on a topic that seems to be um, very relevant today. But as we will discuss, hopefully, um, uh, not just today. And so the, the very first thing that I, that I wanna hear from you is, uh, why write this book? Uh, what motivated you to write this book? Uh, or spend and maybe, and maybe, yeah, and maybe you can tell us more, of course, about, about the book. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what motivated me to write this book is um, I think much of sort of the debate that you see about immigration in the public sphere today is about the southwest border, right? If you look at the sort of newspaper coverage, it mainly focuses on the southwest border. But I think that sort of is only one piece of the puzzle. And to me, what's sort of been interesting is to think about how immigration impacts so many areas of policy in the United States, right? And when you have 24 million people in the United States who are living here without, um, who are non-citizens, right? About 12 million without authorization status, right? What, how do we sort of have immigration policy within the United States through domestic policy? Um, and sort of how does that play out? Like I felt like that's part of the battle. And, I, and what sort of interested me is sort of the anti-immigrant movement in the United States, right? Has some effort at the border, right? Significant effort. 
But there's also a huge movement to, um, to uh, marginalize immigrants who are living within the United States, this 24 million um, people living in the United States. And sort of that's the story that interested me, the sort of not just this sort of national sort of border story that gets sort of the front page of the New York Times, but kind of what's the story behind it, right? And how has policy shifted over the last 50 years in terms of what we think of the rights of immigrants in the United States? So you just mentioned that this is um, an, over, an overview, of, of a look at what happened, what has happened in the last 50 years. And um, the way that I've always thought about um, the U.S. and the history of the U.S. is that I, I guess we like to think of this country as a country of immigrants and a country where immigration is important. Um, however, you, you start later, you don't necessarily go all the way back in time and you still go, you know, some, some years back, you start around 60, 65 to be precise. W why start at this point? What happened? What's so important about this time frame? Well, it would not be appropriate to start talking at the LBJ school without talking about the 1965 <laughs> Immigration Act, um, right? So the 1965 Immigration Act, also known as the Hart Seller Act, right, is passed at this moment in 1965 and it sort of can be seen as this element of um, a combination of the civil rights moment, right? So it's passed in the same year as the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act. Um, it's actually pictured right there, yeah, being, being signed <laughs> on Ellis Island, um, right? So it's passed at this very specific moment and it's sort of at this moment of civil rights and saying we need to rethink our nation's immigration laws. And one of the things that it does is it dramatically diversifies the immigrant population in the United States, and it shifts the demographics drastically. It um, both uh, opens the U.S. dramatically to immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe, groups that had pre previously been capped, right? Uh, and for the first time puts into place a cap on Western hemispheric admissions, right? So for the first time, much of the sort of uh, migration patterns from Mexico and Central and South America now are sort of capped for the first time and sort of creates uh, sort of the, under, the underbelly of this sort of pro-civil rights immigration bill, right, is that it um, basically creates a lot of the illegal immigration mm. to previously legal migration patterns. Yeah. And so it's sort of this moment that the demographic profile of immigrants really dramatically shifts and sort of the, the profile that we see today sort of emerges over the next decade. Will you say that we have maintained this trend since then uh, in terms of the demographic, uh, demographics and the composition of the immigration? Uh, or, uh, do we still see the same trend since then to now? We definitely see similar trends, right? Uh, over time, Asian immigration has started to play an even bigger role. Um, but much of what we see beginning in 65, I mean, you're the pollster, but um, much of what we see beginning in 65 sort of shifts back and forth, but remains largely what we see today. Um, and, and of course, debates to um, immigration and sort of the way that we discussed uh, immigration um, has changed over time, but there's constant reminders. I was um, telling Sarah earlier that one of the things that I love about her book, and everyone should really read it, uh, I invite everyone to read it, is that as I was reading this historical account of immigration, kept thinking of uh, contemporary moments and things happening um, as, as, even as, as I was reading it, some things were happening right like yesterday, the week before, the month before. Um, but one thing that recently happened and, and um, is relevant to, uh, I think, to your book, um, one of the very important moments that you discuss is um, Flyer versus uh, Dole. And, and uh, so this 1982 Supreme Court case that plays a very important role through your book, but then especially in one of the chapters. And not very long ago, um, our very governor, uh, Greg Abbott, was talking about this and sort of proposing that maybe Texas should um, challenge this. And so can you tell me more about this case and, and, and you make the case that this is a very important moment uh, for the course of immigration? Yeah. So beginning in 1965, right, what we see is as in sort of the wake of the starting to see demographic changes in across Texas and other places, um, there's a move within Texas to start charging uh, tuition to undocumented exactly. students. And so the state legislature begins uh, by amending the state education code in 1975. Um, and then in 1977, uh, a town on the east side of Texas in Tyler decides that they're going to be begin charging $1,000 tuition uh, to any undocumented student in the school. Um, and that's about three dollars to $4,000 in today's uh, in today's dollars, so it's incredibly cost, cost prohibitive. 
Um, and so uh, these, uh, actually about eight families, decide to challenge the case. Um, and they reach out to a local uh, civil rights lawyer who's there as part of, um, of, uh, of uh, legal aid. And he'd actually come to work on some, um, some, voter, some voting cases for the NAACP in the region. And they reach out to him and they say, you know, we need, through a Catholic outreach worker, they, that we, you know, we want to challenge this policy. Um, and they're connected with, through him, uh, with MALDEF, the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Education Fund, who basically at this point was working in California. Mm -hmm. They had just started an education litigation um, program. And they were waiting for a case to come up uh, in Texas because uh, they knew that there was this judge, Judge uh, William Wayne Justice, which wins the prize in my mind for like the, the, the yeah. best judge name ever. They were waiting for Judge Justice, right? The, to, they knew they wanted a case in Judge Justice's uh, jurisdiction. Uh, and so the, the case comes up. Maldef hears that there's this case. They fly in to, to eastern Texas. Um, and they take this case all the way uh, first to the Fifth Circuit and then to the Supreme Court. And sort of what's interesting to me about the case, in addition there's a couple things about it, but sort of as it goes through its iterations, the government, and sort of what I outline, has this political debate over what position the federal government's going to take in the case, right? Because we always think of now, Texas is not a swing state, right? It's, it isn't. Um, it won't be <laughs> in, in, in two years. Um, it still <laughs> isn't. Uh, but in 1980, it was, right? It was a considerable swing state. And both the Carter and the Reagan administration really waver back and forth about which position to take in this case. Right? And the Carter administration sort of backs the students before the Fifth Circuit. Uh, the Reagan administration wavers and then backs away when it makes it to the Supreme Court. And it makes it all the way to the Supreme Court. And in a 5-4 decision based on 14th Amendment, um, equal protection and due process, they rule, you know, you cannot, uh, undocumented students are allowed equal uh, protection and equal access uh, to education, which is a huge victory moment. And I think what you see is you have all this immigration rights activism coming out of 65, looking out sort of how like Brown v. Board of Ed has happened. They sort of see these students as like the forefront mm -hmm. of this larger immigrants' rights movement. They're right. Here's, here's our vessel. This is our first moment. This is like the first step. And they, and, and they have this big victory in 1982. And then they suddenly, and they have these in their internal memos, this is our moment, where can we extend rights in various ways, and what's our next moment? And then it's sort of what we see from there is this peak, and then we sort of start to see this decline throughout the 80s and 90s. Yeah. I'd, I'd recommend for everyone here who hasn't uh, had the opportunity, I'd like to tell my students to uh, watch the debate between uh, Bush and Reagan, uh, where they actually, they get a question from a concerned student yeah. about, about this. And the responses are always like, I, I won't spoil it. I want people to yeah. sort of hear the responses. But it, they're always surprised to sort of hear the, the, the take, from both from Bush and, and Reagan on, on education to uh, immigrants. And ultimately, sort of, that has uh, an impact on later uh, legislation. But uh, I want to go back. You mentioned something about um, uh, Texas being a swing state. Yeah. And, um, and just like now, I think it's hard for some to think of Texas as a swing state. It might be hard for uh, also to think of California as a swing state at some point. And um, there's another important piece of legislation that happened, didn't quite make it to the Supreme Court, but it still was monumental, and that was the uh, Prop 187 in California. And uh, I wonder if you can tell us also how this impacted, in a way, uh, the, the way that we think now about um, politics and, and, and immigration. Yeah. So Proposition 187 in California, um, one of the things that's sort of interesting that I trace over the trajectory of my book is sort of the access to the social safety net. Yeah. Right? Um, and so most people in this room probably, unless you're deep experts in this, would find it surprising, right? Until 1971, most uh, anyone in the United States, regardless of immigration status, had access to social security, to unemployment, mm -hmm to um, OAA, to what's uh, Aid to Dependent Children, which is now known as AFDC, right? All of this sort of social and safety net that we nowadays sort of consider, up until 1971, never asked a question about citizenship status or, um, or immigration status, right? And in the 1970s, we start to see an attack on undocumented immigrants' access to these programs. And what we see in the 1990s is a move to sort of attack uh, 
legal permanent residents access to these programs. And that kind of rises out of Prop 187. So Prop 187 is in California. Um, there's a huge rise in anti-immigrant sentiment in 1992, 1993 in California. Right, the U.S. is just, for those of you who don't remember 1992, <laughs> like deeply, um, right, the, we're starting to have, uh, we're in a, in a recession, right? California's unemployment rate is skyrocketing, um, and California is particularly being hit hard because of the defense industries. Um, and there's a rise in sort of a grassroots anti-immigrant movement in California. And they basically try a state-level prop, Proposition 187 to remove unauthorized immigrants from basically and authorized uh, legal permanent residents from almost basically all state services minus emergency medical yeah. um, medical care. It gets uh, approved resoundingly in 1994 uh, at the state level. It goes, it is immediately challenged um, by the governor in the court system and it ends up being invalidated. Um, but what's interesting to me about the case, about sort of this is while it's eventually invalidated, the Clinton White House sees what's happening in California. And California is a swing state, right? They've just won it in 1992 for the first time in, since LBJ. Mm -hmm. And they're very concerned about what this means, right? And how that is going to sort of shift the narrative um, in terms of immigration and how they're getting hit. They say, look at what's happening in California. Look at this policy, right? It's very popular. It wins big, right? And they're like, well, we have this problem. And we have, an, like, literally, they call it the immigration problem, and we need to pivot. And we need what uh, one internal White House advisor says at the time, a new Democrat solution, yeah. right? This is the DLC. It's, it's, it's highlighted in the evidence that you present. It's, like, highlighted as the new problem, right? The new problem. In case we they need, don't hear it. We need, to, we need to shift. Yeah. And so what you see emerge between 1994 and 1996 is a massive shift in the Clinton administration and federal policy about immigrants' access to the social safety net. The Clinton White House, prior to 187 passing, in their welfare reform drafts, right, have no mention of immigrants, right? In the, eventually, in 1996, all legal permanent residents are being cut from large swaths of the social safety net. And that changes in this two-year period as the White House sort of tries to sort out the electoral politics of how do we win California, right? And how do we take a hard line immigration stance at this moment? I mean, it's sort of this, this sort of, and at the end of 96, Clinton wins re-election, right? But immigrants are totally removed from most of these programs, including food stamps. Yeah. And, and if, I, if I might just follow up on this same yeah. line, uh, this also has implications beyond immigrants to the welfare system and the safety net. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the removal of immigrants funds about 40% of Clinton's welfare reform plan, right? So if you want to look at what this does for the population writ large, right, the, the two ideas of the social safety net for immigrants yeah. and the social safety net, um, for, I should say, for non-citizen immigrants uh, and the the social safety net for citizens, right, is deeply entwined. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it's so much so that um, we continue to see it. And just, you know, uh, this was a big part of also Trump's um, reforms and proposals and the, the so-called uh, public charge rule uh, that uh, ultimately Biden sort of uh, overturns it, and, but, but it's still in the debate. And just and just today, a, a few minutes ago, a couple of hours ago, um, uh, Biden uh, sort of talks about marijuana and and charges to um, uh, uh, marijuana charges that he's basically uh, getting rid of those, but not not to immigrants. Yes. And so and so what what your book is telling us in a way is these conversations of immigrants and the safety net and the way that immigrants interact with benefits and it's it's constantly changing and 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 present yeah uh, um to what to what extent these efforts and and what we have seen in the past and today tells us about what we might see in in in, in the next few years and sort of the way that uh, immigration continues to be a, a debate so i think what's interesting to me is i think as 
you know, anti-immigrant effort in the 70s and 80s, really, when they try and focus on militarizing the border, right, and they try and sort of ramp up border enforcement, but they realize that they're unsuccessful. And so they start to think about, okay, so what other ways can we sort of minimize immigrants' access to rights in the United States, right? And I think we'll see that again, right? If we see increasingly the anti-immigrant sentiment has some effort at the border, right? But if they get frustrated, right, that they don't see the border being shut in any significant way, they just look to how else can we minimize this population and sort of relegate them to second-class citizenship in the United States. So I think we'll see continued efforts to try and minimize immigrants' rights in the United States at a state and local level in particular, um, and at a federal level, but I think in particular. I mean, you look at the question of um, of DACA, for yeah. example, you know, how can we remove immigrants' access to education, right? Or so how can we sort of, or to labor, sort of that question. But, but it goes beyond borders, right? Yeah. Because um, it, it, as someone who follows uh, elections closely and who follows uh, debates on immigration closely across elections in the country, one thing that we see is that um, immigration is a threat and as a problem uh, goes well beyond border states and you'll have you know, states well in the middle of the country saying we need to be stronger at the border and they kind of wonder what border are you talking about? Do you don't <laughs> like your neighboring state or um, uh, yeah. what is it? So I see that this uh, almost um, movement of, of, of immigrants beyond border states is now sort of taking these debates that you talk about uh, beyond border states and into the center and, 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 and is this, is this going to continue? Yeah. So I think, I think it is in the sense that, so one of the things that happens after Reagan's amnesty, like one of the big demographic shifts is that people start moving, right? They have freedom of movement once uh, they have authorization. And so we see sort of a, um, a wide sort of, de- sort of spreading out of immigration in the United States post 86, like demographically. The other thing that we start to see sort of over the 90s is that certain states in the Rocky Mountain West, in the Southeast, right to work states in particular, see, while it's still not a massive percentage of the nation's immigration, they are seeing their immigrant populations almost double, Yeah. right? So I think that sort of brings, will bring these states, continue to bring these states into the conversation. I think when I think back historically, right, the question about Plyler in Texas in 80 when it's a swing state, the question about California in 96 when it's a swing state, right? How are the politics of, say, Nevada going to play out in two years? or the politics of immigration in North Carolina, right? How does the sort of, the immigrate, this, what are the swing states that we're gonna to start to see this sort of shape the national debate, right? Obviously Texas and California still play a role, but I think sort of looking at how these non-border states influence the debate is gonna sort of play out over time. You mentioned, um, you mentioned the, uh, the Dreamers and the Dream Act and, you know, Poll after poll shows that um, uh, there's great approval for 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 these laws to just you know uh, pass and become an actual law. And, yeah. and, um, and yet uh, we don't we don't really see the momentum at that level. Um, I was telling you earlier about this project that I'm working on right now, where we see uh, an interesting take from Dreamers on on citizenship. And, and one of the things that we learn in your book is sort of like the way, the way in which citizenship has been redefined in the last 20 years. Yeah. And there's almost been a retake. And I see it clearly on, on the way that dreamers see it, but why don't you tell us more about how this, uh, the concept of citizenship and how we see citizenship has changed in the last few years. Right, and I think this is one of those things I think about how history, right, can provide us with an idea of how things haven't always been this way, right? And they can provide us a guide of some you know, we're not deemed to repeat ourselves and maybe we can go a different direction. So, uh, right, I think in the 1960s and early 70s, right, we had a much more expansive notion of immigrants' rights. And as we've seen, like, education rights were starting to be attacked. We've seen, uh, like, the social safety net. We've seen labor rights through employer sanctions and verification. We've seen all these sort of internal enforcement efforts sort of ramp up. And this notion of citizenship that we have now is much, it's much more right are you a citizen or are you not, yeah. right? And citizenship takes a much sort of hard line in the stand. And I think most of our popular notion of this, right, if you think about the last couple of years, is sort of under the Trump administration, this kind of thing. 
But one of the things I really point out is that this happened in the 90s, right? It happens under Clinton. And a lot of the framework of what we're ta dealing with today is sort of these changes that happened in the 90s sort of at this, during this like supposed, you know, democratic president and sort of creates these, um, not suppose that he is a democratic president, uh, mm -hmm. uh, these like very hard line yeah. sort of policies and frameworks that we think about. Yeah. So, so it's, so people, I hear sometimes this argument when I talk to reporters about, well, immigration is now brought to the forefront because Trump started talking about it or he did all these things. It's, it's really all, always been there. I mean, yeah. uh, the way that we talk about immigrants. And, and you mentioned that, you know, sort of history tells us that we doesn't have to repeat itself. And um, we're talking briefly about this uh, before we came uh, in here, but uh, I, I tend to have a more pessimistic uh, view <laughs> on this. Um, so as, uh, you know, researchers, uh, students, uh, policymakers uh, of immigration, what, what can um, history tell us so that we can really not repeat the same mistakes? Right, I think there's um, a couple ways to think about it. So there's one which is, my work talks a lot about the activism of individuals, right? And the ways in which certain people at key times have made sort of huge actions in, you think about someone like the Alvarez family in, in Tyler, right? At the very local level, how you can challenge sort of these restrictive policies. I think the other thing that sort of can be a guide for the future, and I think about is, um, and this is not a sexy answer, right? But bureaucracy is messy, mm -hmm. right? And the anti-immigrant movement pushes very hard and has been very uh, aggressive throughout the 70s and 80s, but they fail, yeah. right? And let's look at why they failed, right? And they failed because state and local efforts and federal efforts have kind of gotten in this the, the gunk of bureaucracy, right? And they sort of push back in these like very sort of concrete ways. Um, and then I think the the final thing that it can teach us is um, if you're an immigration pro-immigration activist, right? We can look at how anti-immigrant activists have really harnessed state and local politics, right? And you can respond in kind. We see that in California now, right? California has some of the most expansive uh, immigrant inclusion efforts. Right. And I think you can look at how states, right, if we are more and more, it seems right, there's no there's no large scale DACA program going to happen. There's no large scale immigration reform is sort of dead, you know, for at least the next two years. Mm -hmm. Right. How can state state and local governments, we see more and more and governors, right, play a role in sort of shifting the policy? Is that because California is a safe uh, non um, swing state? I don't think that's because California's. I think you know. I think I think immigration, and I'd love your perspective as someone like who deeply studies Texas. I think immigration is more complex in many states than most people give it credit to. I think Texas has the potential to go there. Um, I think uh, the policies that Governor Abbott currently pushes are not necessarily as um, as widely popular as the national press mm -hmm. would help make you think they are in Texas. I think at, at a state level, there are many people in Texas who are quite critical of Governor Abbott on, on immigration. Yeah, I think that's a helpful perspective, right? For, especially for those that don't live in Texas or have never been into Texas, might listen to uh, this podcast uh, at some point, this conversation. Um, it's a helpful uh, reminder that um, the way that things are in Texas aren't necessarily the way that can be seen through um, national politics or the yeah. way that they're reflected. And there's, um, there's, um, in your book, there's uh, also this story uh, of um, mobilization, a story of uh, those beyond the powers that be, right? that also push for, for that. And, 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 and I think we can see those movements in Texas happening too, yeah. right? where immigrants tend to also try to have a voice. And I think we need to complicate the anti-immigrant narrative mm -hmm. in the United States, right? I think, you know, the 20s and 30s, you think about the sort of anti-immigrant nativist sort of eugenics movement, sort of fear of takeover, like sort of replacement theory, sort of population, right? That sort of anti-immigrant sentiment has been there for, for a very long time. What sort of layers in during the 1970s that I think is somewhat easier to refute in like a, to, to the average voter, and I don't know if this is true, right? But what layers in in the 1970s is this argument that immigrants, right, at this moment of economic downturn, they're a burden on state, and, and they're taking sort of benefits and sort of the social safety net away. And I think 
that's a sort of argument that in some ways it's easier to like, uh, if that gets layered on, maybe we can, we can remove that layer, right? I think there's some people who, you know, uh, are anti-immigrant, uh, they, there's this very like racist anti-immigrant argument and they will never sort of subscribe to that, but they're like, oh, but I can kind of understand the other argument. Yeah. But maybe if we invalidate that other argument effectively, right, then they can sort of, that sort of might have yeah. some, well, does that make? Yeah, the way, the way that you're talking about Iran um, is uh, very focused on states and sort of things happen at the state level. Um, you know, as so someone who didn't go to high school in this country and had sort of had to learn how this country worked um, uh, in college, um, I, I found it very interesting the way that immigration sort of really is supposed to rely at the federal level. Right? Yeah. Like, but that, that, that didn't quite happen that way. And is the, I mean, the way that we're talking about it now, it doesn't seem to be that way, but this is something that you also talk about in your book, that there was sort of a shift, and it seems like we're still there. Yeah. So up until, for like, from basically the colonial times through 1880s, right, immigration was largely a state and local matter, right? Most of the state-level immigration is happening in Massachusetts and New York, and restriction is sort of a state-level sort of restriction. And it's only with Asian immigration on the West Coast that we start to see for the first time federal immigration policy. And through a series of court cases in the late 1880s, we basically cement federal jurisdiction over immigration policy. That remains somewhat unchallenged, right? There's a little bit of challenge in the 20s and 30s, but largely unchallenged until the, until the 70s. And I think um, what you start to see, particularly in the 90s, is the shift to state and local and to, uh, away from the federal. And I think, um, you know, it happens you know, I think in my mind it, it was a, it was a negative shift, no. right? I think, um, for better or worse, I think you know it, it, I, that's sort of how I think about it. Um, and but I think if we accept the fact that it has happened, that the shift has happened, right? I think there's a ways to think forward and use it creatively, right? But most of the federal, what's interesting to me about the federal sort of shift to the local, is that. Sometimes, like in California, states shift national policy, even if their state policy fails, right? But they, their policy and the failure at 187, like the, the electoral success of 187 shifts the national policy. Another case that I talk about is Iowa, right? I mean, I think a lot of people sort of often think of just talking about California or Texas or that kind of thing. But in the mid-1990s, um, Iowa, because of right-to-work laws and the shifting and meatpacking, right, becomes sort of um, a case where there's a sort of uh, immigration becomes this more hotbed issue. And there's a murder um, in a small town, um, uh, and it sort of plays out that they realize that the, um, that the person who committed the crime uh, was undocumented and had been identified by local police as undocumented a year before and had returned to town. And these local politicians basically make an issue out of it, saying you know, we don't have, you know, we need the authority to do immigration enforcement because we don't have the nearest CBP is in Nevada, right? We're nowhere near 100 miles from the border. We don't have, like, so it puts this, it sort of leads to the state level effort that nowadays we see in states far from Iowa, right? But it creates this program called 287G, which allows for the federal government to delegate uh, immigration enforcement to state and locals. And so I think that's sort of another place where you see sort of that away from the border, you see literally the delegation of federal authority to states in the 90s. So as you talk about um, notions of away from the border, um, so I, uh, I lived many, many years along the border. Um, I, I could see the border fence or wall <laughs> from uh, my backyard. Um, and so, I, 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 I want to give the opportunity uh, for the audience to ask questions, but I want to close with two questions. And so the, the first one is uh, the title. So what is the wall within? And uh, I'm always fascinated uh, with how authors arrive to the title. Uh -huh. So if you can tell us sort of about the technical part of it, like, oh, so was there, or like that, thought about it, like uh -huh. someone suggested it, and then what it means for the yeah. book. And as you talk about what it means for the book, maybe um, if you can close by telling us um, why is this book important for you know uh, LBJ alumni and policymakers? Yeah. Um, so the um, how I came to the book title. Um, 
I had a much longer title that got rejected by the publisher. (laughs) (laughs) Initially, it was something like something, 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 semicolon, something, something, something. And they were like, not going to work. Why don't you come email us back with like five options next week? So I spent a weekend running and thinking a lot about titles. Um, And I started to think about, and for me, with Walls Within is right, there's so much focus on the border wall, right? But we have created these walls to American society and to the American dream very effectively over the last 30 years, right? We as a society. And I think we need to think about how we can remove those walls, right, for the 24 million people who are living here who don't have citizenship status. Beautiful. And over. Um, and then, uh, I forgot the second half. Uh, why, why, oh, why, why is why it important? Is important, yeah. Yeah, um, I think it's really important, and I would suggest, you know, I think people to think about, um, like history, as I said, does not have to repeat itself, right? And we've seen this massive denigration of immigrants' rights in the United States over the last 50 years. And I think we need to think about how can we get back to that place we were in the 70s? And what does it mean right, that our citizenship, that our notion of rights is so tied to citizenship, right? And how can we sort of, how can we sort of work back to a place where we think about rights more expansively that aren't necessarily tied to citizenship status? Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, good, because I have one ready. Everybody thought that the browning of America would uh, would kind of make immigrants uh, more and more powerful. And it really hasn't happened, even though America is becoming much more immigrant. Um, and one of the things is that, that Hispanics themselves are really often very anti-immigrant. Um, I mean, half of, uh, half of ICE is, is Hispanic. And I don't really, you know, I don't understand how a lot of these people sleep at night, to be honest. Uh, but but it, it really, it doesn't seem like that's changing at all. And um, that, that so much of this, this like negative and racist kind of, kind of behavior and treatment is, is still going. And now it's, now it's an absolute watchword, uh, uh, you know, an absolute anchor of the Republican uh, position. And that wasn't always the case at all. Yeah, so I think it's sort of a, and you raise this uh, quite eloquently, right, that, that I think it's a mistake to think of, right, and this is exactly what Dr. Garcia Rios is like, polling data will show you, right, that he does excellent work on, right, that, that the Latino population in the United States is very diverse, right, and their perspective on, um, on immigration is not uniform. Um, it hasn't historically been uniform either, right? When you think about, I talk about these MALDEF activists in the 70s who take up undocumented children's uh, access to education. If you looked at MALDEF five years earlier, they were working, I mean, uh, 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 LULAC, sorry, five, LULAC five years earlier, um, Right, Lulac joins in the case as a, in an amicus brief. Um, five years earlier, right, they're opposing undocumented immigration to the United States, right? And so I think either it's a sort of a misnomer and sort of mis, it's a misconstrued to think that historically this population has been united on a perspective on immigration and, and that that's going to change necessarily. I mean, you should. And, and, yeah, and, and, and in a way, um, we tend to think that there will be natural um, 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 Supporters of one way or another, but history has shown us that, um, and uh, it seems to be a human condition, really, um, that people sort of embrace policies that uh, seem to go counter to their own interests. Um, on 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 ICE and border enforcement being actively Latino, this is a very interesting question that researchers have looked at, and um, um, one of the things that they find is that ultimately uh, it's you know, job opportunities and just the same way that um, heavily police um, black neighborhoods are policed by uh, black cops. Um, and ultimately, people have to take have to take the, you know, job opportunities that they have. And sometimes they're not very, uh, available widely. And do they like what they do? Not always. And, you know, works of uh, colleagues, which is um, another mm, uh, Texas native, uh, David Cortez, has shown this and he has done extensive 
interviews uh, with, with uh, Border Patrol enforcers. And, and yes, um, uh, Latino, diverse uh, population, and they, they tend to show these diverse uh, attitudes. But the browning of America, um, I think, um, it's, 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 it's giving more power to brown voters. It's just not uniform. So just like uh, voters, uh, Latino voters in Arizona, uh, we're able to vote Arpaio out. Uh, voters in Florida, Latino voters in Florida, were able to give Florida to Trump. So the voting power is there, it's just not uniform. And it's also remember, right, that they vote on many different issues, yeah. right? And immigration may not be the number one issue for many of these voters. And it hasn't Maybe been for many years. And lately, it's, uh, it has actually been, right now, and you know, polls will show, is the economy, jobs, uh, Surprise, surprise, right? Just like everyone else, uh, uh, inflation. It's also uh, top of the mind. And so, thank you. Hi, uh, my name is Roy Potts, and I just came back from doing a Council on Foreign Relations Fellowship in Canada, where I was looking at migration and, and their approaches. Um, one of the things that I wanted to ask about is these linkages between um, groups that are um, uh, in support of, let's just say, fair immigration. And um, it, it's one of the obstacles is this is a very complex subject. And it, it doesn't seem as though uh, the public has the desire to really... <laughs> Um, unpack some of these very complex issues. Um, do you think talking about the economic benefits um, can cut through some of the challenges? America has to be competitive. It is going to be more competitive with talented immigrants. Um, I think that is a, a, a message that maybe resonates, but I'd like to hear whether or not you think that will be enough to sort of cut through um, some of the challenges, some of the hurdles about talking about this. And again, if you could just sort of talk about the groups that can possibly link up around this. I'm very concerned that um, uh, the narratives are very limited, um, particularly when it comes to people of color, like black people in this country are marginalized when it comes to this discussion. Why is that? And can there be some new language, linkages uh, uh, that can be made that have not been tapped before? Right. Well, I think there's a lot of interesting group. Right, uh, immigration lends itself to what you know what one would call strange bedfellows. Right, to get sort of deals done. If you look historically, right, much of it has to come through these sort of unusual alliances. Um, groups such as the Urban League. Um, and others have come a long way from the 1970s when they were firmly on sort of the anti-immigrant restriction, uh, restriction side, right? Through the early 1970s, they're pushing employer sanctions. They're pushing a lot of that. So I think there's, there, and labor unions, right? Like the AFL-CIO and others have dramatically shifted their position on immigration. And I think we do need to make sure that we sort of bring these groups to the forefront of the conversation, right? That we're not going to sort of win this, uh, win these, these, the passage of these without bringing all of these coalitions to the table. I think the economic argument is a strong one to make. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing I'd emphasize, right, is to say it's not just about adding to the economy, and I sort of talk about this in the close of my book, but like um, immigrant, uh, immigrant labor is essential to the solvency of the social welfare state, right, and to social security and to all these sort of broader social safety net program. So it's not just a boon to the economy, it is literally upholding our social safety net. And I think we need to sort of bring all these groups to the table and say, sort of think about like, how do we bring that into that, that conversation? It's, it's, if I can complicate this, is, is that complicated by what we've seen in history is, you know, thinking about the Chinese Exclusion Act that came after immigrants clearly were being helpful and needed and then Operation Wetback, yeah. right? The, clearly comes after Braceros are being helpful and, 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 and solving a problem. But then the reaction then is um, anti-immigrant after, after, after those helping hands sort of come around. Yeah. So I think we need to sort of think about how we, multiple narratives, right, to bring different groups in. 
Great question, though. So I have one real quick. Through this generational flux situation between local and national enforcement of immigration, how much of a role in those different periods has America's tendency towards isolationism been impacted by global events outside our borders? Um, American isolationism and sort of foreign policy as a whole has played a significant role throughout history in shaping immigration policy. If you think about the 1924 Immigration Act, which sort of starts this massive period till 65, where we have among the most restricted immigration in the United States, it comes sort of at this moment because of three things come together in the 1920s. One is eugenics, right? Two is a rise in immigration that's been happening over the last 10 years. And the third is World War I. And the explicit sort of federal uh, and sort of national political endorsement of anti-immigrant rhetoric when it be anti-German, right? And sort of the concern about hyphenated Americans that happens during World War I, right? And so you see that in the 20s, right? Foreign policy plays a more expansive role in the opposite direction in immigration policy in the 60s. So you think about, I talked about a little bit about the signing of the 60s. Five bill right there at the start, right? This moment of civil rights, right? The U.S. is also in the midst of the Cold War, right? And we're trying to win the hearts and minds of countries around the world. And yet we're like, by the way, you can't come in, mm -hmm. right? That yeah. doesn't play that well, right? So, <laughs> so an expansive immigration policy, right? So foreign policy certainly plays a role throughout history in sort of shifting our immigration policy at the border. And I think, you want to add anything there? <laughs> no, I mean, uh, I, I think uh, I like how you talk about the circularity of, uh, you know, um, it, it, it seems to go hand in hand. Um, but um, I don't see these tendencies for isolationism uh, going away. And so maybe that's why I'm more um, skeptic and pessimistic about the outlook of immigrants. Um, one right here. And then there's some, there's some, yeah, so go ahead. And Thank you both. Um, Sarah, I'd be curious, and you sort of started to get on this uh, in the last answer, about how much, how um, or how little does the actual numbers of immigrants crossing the borders track with the anti-immigrant uh, public dialogue over the last 50 years? I, I, well, you go ahead. Yeah, then, sorry. No, I mean, uh, uh, I just want to offer a set of data okay. on this. Yeah, uh, but this is data specialty. No, but, <laughs> but it, it, it tracks. We have there's uh, we have been asking this question in you know sociologists and political scientists have been asking this question uh, about um, perception of of immigrants, and the question basically asked, uh, do you think there should be more immigrants than what we have now or less immigrants? And then we track sort of, you know, correlations to this answer to um, attitudes, and then at the same time correlations to actual immigration. And so what uh, tracks is the perception of immigrants coming to the country tracks perfectly with um, economic anxieties and uh, levels of unemployment, and, and then at the same time um, feelings of um, anti-immigration. Uh, but it, it doesn't track actual rates of immigration. Um, and uh, so uh, narratives around uh, numbers of immigrants actually coming uh, seem to follow these fears rather than the actual numbers of people yeah. coming. The average American has no idea how the immigration numbers are going up and down monthly, yearly, have no no real perception. But like this sort of what Leo Chavez calls like the Latino threat narrative, right? That sort of threat narrative really sort of ties very closely, right, to sort of the economic situation. Yeah, and 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 just uh, finally um, say that it, it, not only um, the average American don't know uh, sort of how many immigrants are coming or not, is that uh, they also largely ignore that um, you know there's been a decline on the groups that they seem to fear the most, or that they seem to think that, you know, for, for a long time, uh, immigration had actually, uh, Mexican immigration had a, ne 
net negative. So people were leaving the country. Um, and, and yet the narrative was, we need to stop people coming to the border. Well, guess what? They're, they're actually, actually leaving. Actually you, leaving. We, you know, your, the price of your products is going up. And so that's maybe what you should be tracking. Uh, thanks again for uh, for the talk. I find it very very interesting. Uh, I wanted to ask. Um, you mentioned a lot of sort of anti-immigrant movements that have occurred over time in California, in Arizona, um, but I but I have also there's all there also seems to be a trend of there being a, a pushback against that. And California is an example of that. Now California is very very democratic, has a very strong Latino population that votes. Same in Arizona. Arizona, the 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 Arpaio movement seemed to have a uh, sort of a flashback, and now Latinos are organized and they're moving. In Virginia, same thing happened. In Prince William County, we had a huge you know anti-immigrant backlash not that long ago, and now in those same counties, you have state senators and local legislators that are Latinos. Uh, so, can you talk a little bit about like sort of the success of the sort of the countering? the narrative encountering those movements at the local level. I don't know if your book covers that at all or not. And if, if you have examples of like today, good organizations to support uh, in terms of uh, the back, in, in terms of fighting back against this racist narrative. Yeah, so I think one of the things that's really interesting to think about in many of these places, like in, um, for example, in Iowa, right, they work really hard to get this local, the ability for state and local law enforcement to do immigration enforcement. And then at the, when it comes, they start to, they're like, great, we've signed this agreement with the federal government, or we've got this, uh, this, this model that we can use. And then Salt, um, Salt Lake City and uh, uh, um, Storm City, Iowa, Salt Lake City, Utah and Storm City, Iowa, then are like, okay, we're going to try and do this. And locally, right, groups organize, target the city council, and there's no agreement signed. Right? And for almost five years, not a single jurisdiction is able, right? as you said, there's this huge anti-immigrant movement. People mobilize at a local level at the state council, at the state council and sort of come and sort of turn around. In California, not, like, we see among, and you would know probably more specifically the data, but like massive naturalization rates. Yeah. People who largely in California in the 90s hadn't seen a reason to naturalize, right? sort of moved to naturalize incredibly after after prop 187 yeah this is this is the chip that points heavily yeah. that political science and latino politics sort of our response to that i think um it builds on this narrative that we were talking earlier about how there's going to be latino power built on threat and, yeah yeah um so yeah groups are, are are i mean i can't think i mean there are lots of great organizations now that work in this space um you know there's some i don't know the ones in virginia but i mean i think there's great groups, and I think it's an opportunity, right, when people sort of realize, sometimes unfortunately, right, really, you need this sort of big spurring moment to get people mobilized behind sort of the, the, the pro-immigration effort. Let's take one more question. Uh, this has been a fantastic conversation, but in the interest of time, let's take one more. Close. So, make it the best question. This is, okay. So we're closing with this no one. Pressure. It better be great. No Hi, I'm Rihanna. Thank you so much for being here today. Um, so my grandparents immigrated to the United States from India um, like over 50 years ago. And they came here in the hopes of kind of fulfilling the American dream, which like you talked a bit about. And I guess my question is like, do you think that that's something that's still achievable for like for immigrants today or even just for American citizens with the policies that have been put in place with immigrant attitudes, like attitudes towards immigrants? Um, or is that something that we have to give up on? So I'm an optimist and I, um, <laughs> I look how you looked at me first. Like, oh no, I think no. Uh, I don't think the immigrant, uh, the American dream is dead. Right. And I, for immigrant populations, um, what I do hope that we can remind people is that for those people who say, well, my grandfather came here in 1920 and, you know, achieved the American dream all on his own, right? He had a very different uh, situation, right? He had access to a social safety net. He had sort of all these things that we've now stripped. So what I want to sort of remind people who are multiple generations away from immigration, right? They say like, my, you know, my, my great-grandfather did it on his own, right? Well, let's talk about what that what that was what that on our own was and like how that has dramatically changed like why can't immigrants today quote unquote do it on their own like let's change let's talk and sort of correct that narrative uh i actually agree and i think 
I think the, the American dream is the immigrant dream. And, and, you know, many will say it's the Americano dream. Yeah. And I think immigrants are the ones that are keeping the American dream alive. Yeah. So I'm actually uh, I'm hopeful to hear uh, your response. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. So we'd like to invite all of you to join us for a brief reception in the other room to continue this conversation if you'd like. Personally, I'd like to invite you all to join us on our podcast series reflecting this entire series of Texas authors. More importantly, there's a QR code out front for a discount on what the publisher decided would be the walls within. But thank you so much, Dr. Garcia Rios, for moderating, and especially Sarah joining us this evening to talk about your wonderful research. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, thank you so much. Great. As the beginning of the conversation noted, your book focuses on how our modern framework for immigration policy begins with the passage of the Immigration Act of 1965. Though we tend to think of immigration policy as purely a federal matter, what has been the role of states influencing the national debate? Right. So I think many people in the United States think of sort of Arizona's SB 1070 and Sheriff Joe Arpaio as sort of this new moment in 2010 of states shaping immigrants' rights. But one of the things that I show in my book is that states actually have this much longer history of shaping immigration policy and immigrants' rights in various ways. Um, nearly two decades before Sheriff Joe in Arizona, right, the state at the nation's heartland, Iowa, was shifting the nation's immigration policy. And in my book, I highlight how a murder in a small town in Iowa combines with sort of the region's broader changing immigration patterns. And politicians like Senator Grassley and the spur the creation of a program called 287G in 1996. And this program, while it sounds like a bureaucratic sort of numbered program, is actually very important. It allows the federal government to deputize state and local law enforcement to do federal immigration enforcement. And 287G effectively ended what had been nearly a century of exclusive federal legal federal control over immigration enforcement. And it sets into sort of a new wave of concerns about immigrant civil liberties in the United States. But I think not only is what we see in Iowa important because it shows us how sort of states begin driving immigration policy well before 2010, right? But it also shows us that there's a sort of different ways, sort of different levers that you can think about how states are driving. You have either direct delegation of authority, like you see in Iowa in the 90s, or as I talked about with Dr. Garcia Rios a little bit, you have the ways in which state and local action forces immigration policy to sort of conform to state preferences. And so that's sort of how, so there's two different ways that states begin functioning in the 90s to do this, either directly like Iowa, getting delegated authority for immigration, or in the case of California with Prop 187, like Dr. Garcia Rios and I spoke about, right? The, what happens in California pressures the federal policy to shift, to accommodate the pressures of sort of the electoral politics in California at the time. And so well before, you know, by 2010, we see states are shaping immigration policy in numerous ways. We have states like Arizona and Alabama that are incredibly restrictive and sort of put, trying to put laws in the books that in a new sort of very restrictive regime into place. And we have states like California that are doing things like on their own, on driver's license, sort of pushing immigrant integration, right? And so that's sort of this moment, you know, we see the results of it nowadays, but this moment in the 90s, we really start to see states working in two sort of complementary ways to get immigration power into their hands. You also talk about historic examples of commonality or bipartisanship when it comes to immigration policy. What's it going to take for us to get back towards another era of that type of discussion? 
So, you know, I think it's one of the things that's important to remember and think the importance of history can remind us is that immigration does not have to be such a um, polarizing topic. And throughout history, we've had major reforms on immigration through bipartisan work. I think right now the current climate makes sort of a comprehensive immigration reform package very difficult to foresee happening in the next year or two. Um, But I think when we look at sort of issues that are currently arising in immigration policy, we might see some potential for bipartisan work. For example, the Fifth Circuit recently punted Texas v. United States um, back to the, the district court for the Southern District of Texas for consideration of the Biden administration's final rule for DACA. And I think if Judge Hannon and the Fifth Circuit rules for the state and against the DACA program, I think we might see sort of a potential for bipartisan support to get through some of the dreamer bills, right? When every other pathway has been closed, the majority of people in America support these dreamer programs. And I think sort of that sort of situation, we might see sort of more bipartisan work on specific immigration issues, even if we can't get anywhere on comprehensive reform right now. I can't imagine how difficult that would be politically in this environment. Well, Sarah, it's been a real pleasure to chat with you. So glad you could join me here. Thank you so much for having me. And I really appreciate the warm welcome from the Washington Center and the LBJ School. Well, we were thrilled to have you. And again, the book is The Walls Within. The Politics of Immigration in Modern America. And thank you for joining us. Come back to join me and our other historians in the coming weeks. For more insightful episodes of Policy on Purpose, please visit lbj.utexas.edu slash podcast. This is Policy on Purpose, a podcast produced by the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. We take you behind the scenes of policy with the people who help shape it. To learn more, visit lbj.utexas.edu and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at the LBJ School. Thank you for listening.